The New Dress by Virginia Woolf was written in 1924 while Woolf was writing her novel Mrs. Dalloway. The story follows Mabel Waring and her thoughts at Clarissa Dalloway's party. In this episode, we'll discuss how the story tackles issues of class and its effects on the main character's mental health, as well as background of the author. This is Analytical. Hello! Hello, hello. I'm Hannah. And I'm John. And we're your favorite literary nerds. Hey guys, before we start, we just want to let you guys know this episode is a little sadder and tackles some strong issues such as suicide and mental health. So if that might affect you in any way, shape, or form, please don't listen or do. Use your own discretion. Alright, so to start the episode, I think we're going to get into the background of the author, which is this is where we're going to talk a little bit about the suicide because Virginia Woolf did commit suicide in 1941. Which I didn't know until today. So just to give a brief background of her life, Virginia Woolf was a prolific English writer. She is considered the pioneer of stream of consciousness writing, which we talked a little bit about in our Rose for Emily episode with William Faulkner. She's considered one of the most important modernist authors of the 20th century. So like her main character of the story, she came from a large family. She was seventh of eight. And in the story, Mabel Waring was one of ten children. To contrast a little bit from the character, Wolf was fairly wealthy. She came from a large family, but both of her parents were very well off and from very large, robust, wealthy families. She suffered a lot of tragedies as a teenager slash young adult. Her mother died when she was 13 and her father died when she was 22. In each of these, it is noted that she had a mental breakdown after their, her parents' deaths. She kept a very extensive diary documenting her mental health, which is why historians now know that she had these large mental breakdowns when her parents died. Her father had encouraged her to write, and following his death, with her siblings, they formed an artistic and literary Bloomsbury group. She married Leonard Wolf, another writer, and they formed a publishing company, which she used for many of her works. That's pretty helpful for her own self-interest. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Cause, I mean, she had the artistic and literary group where she would be able to write, and she had her husband, who was also a writer, and they published together. It definitely did help her interest a lot. Yeah. And actually, something she is noted saying is that a woman has to have money and a roof over her head to write fiction. So she was very fortunate in her position and that her father actually encouraged her to write. Yeah, I think that's definitely not the norm for this time period. No. Women writers weren't really accepted. Not at all. And actually, she faced a lot of backlash in being a woman writer, and she kind of lost popularity in the 30s and then regained it in the 70s with the feminist movement, similar as Kate Chopin. Okay. I never really knew. I had never really thought about the issues that they faced in their own times like that greatly. To me, when I think of like old writers, it just seems so far back. But like she was died in 1941. Like that isn't really that long ago. Like I have a grandma who was born in 19... We have a grandmother that was born in 1929. So it's just kind of like weird for me to think that my grandmother could have potentially been alive when she was still writing and like still would have been able to read one of her works. Yeah, one of the like newly published works. Exactly, yeah. That is just weird. insane to me. So another thing that kind of sets her apart from women of her time, she actually told her husband, yes, I want to marry you. Like she had told before, been very profound in saying, I don't want to be married. I don't want to be married. And Leonard was like, okay. And then she said, no, I decided we can get married. So she kind of set her own path and her own timeline of marriage and everything else. Which is something I think that uh, the word that comes to mind is take for granted, but I don't think we do take that for granted. I think that's just a thing that people should be able to do, but I think that's something that she definitely is special for, and I think that's also really interesting. Yeah, and the time, I just feel like, I mean, maybe we're thinking a little bit too much, but I know even for, like, our grandmother, she knew she was going to get married to him. They didn't really, like, discuss it. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking of. It's just, like, 
it wasn't a question. It was just is. Yes. And this, like, she was, she said no, which I think would not have been accepted, especially, like, her being a woman just saying no would have been like, well, what's, like, that's witchery. Like, like I shouldn't say that. I'm sorry. Witchery it was a, a good, witch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a little uh. bit earlier, but okay. <laughs> but you see the connection I'm making. Yes. So with her keeping a diary and her documenting her health, mental health status, they saw a lot of ebb and flows. She would have manic episodes and depressive episodes, which leads a lot of historians to believe that she might have been bipolar, which they didn't have a good intervention method in the 1920s when she would have been expressing or feeling a lot of these things. I don't know. Showing? Yeah, when she would have been showing a lot of these symptoms. There we go. In 1941, with World War II going on, her husband was enlisted in the England's Home Guard. Her friend had recently died, and there was an attack on London that's called the Blitz that destroyed one of her homes. She became just so much more depressed, and she wrote more about death in her diary. And so I think her last work that was posthumously published also shows a little bit more of that darker aspect. I cannot think of the name of it off the top of my head, but when I was researching it, it said that is one of her like darkest works. She died in on March 28th, 1941 from drowning herself in a river by her house. She did write to her husband in her suicide note saying that if anything could have saved her, it would have been him and he was some of the happiest times of her life and for him not to blame herself, but she thought she was holding him back. Yeah, my first thought was that that was kind of crappy of her to say if anything could have saved me, it was you because that just makes him feel like he should have been there. No, because in the, I mean, their note is posted on Wikipedia. You guys can read it. It is public knowledge. But she said nothing could save me, but if anything could, it would have been you. He was in the home guard. That means he was... In England at the time, she was just a pacifist and didn't like the war at all. Yeah. And so she didn't want him in it. She actually kind of, like, mocked him for wearing the suit. And there's also some controversies around Virginia Woolf. She was kind of seen as anti-Semitic in some of her works. But she also, her husband was a Jew. And so I think he would have felt more compelled to fight in the war, especially with World War II being with the Holocaust and everything. I think he would have been very compelled to fight. And she was just a pacifist and did not agree with fighting at all. That was some controversies listed is that some people really did rail on her for it was that she was anti-Semitic and wrote poorly about Jews using stere- like harmful stereotypes. Well, I think that's something we should say. Like, yes. It is. It's definitely a valid criticism and something that should be critiqued and pointed out and that, you know, she is not a perfect person. Well, no one is, but I think it's a wide shot to be like, oh, like, no one's perfect, so I hate the Jews. Like, that's pretty rough, guys. Don't do no, that. No, 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 that's bad. That's awful. <laughs> I just think sometimes people romanticize Virginia Woolf as being such a pioneer of feminist literature, but we do have to take into the fact that she was horribly racist. Yeah. I think it's a thing to bring up. I had never heard that about her. I haven't <laughs> heard a lot about Virginia Woolf, actually. I think it's interesting. I've always heard about her. Like, I know that she's famous. But I could not have told you that she died in River or she killed herself in River until today. So when I, you told me. I did know the River bit. There's another work of literature. It's more modern that focuses on that and the character in that also kills himself by that. And he's very obsessed with Wolf, but I never knew she was anti-Semitic. So I'm guessing the author of that book just left that out this time, which I think is something harmful to do too. You can't erase the bad and just portray them as being this pioneer feminism when also they were not a pioneer for other marginalized groups. You're absolutely right. And that is an issue with a lot of authors. A lot of authors are just, well, they're all just people and they all make mistakes and they all can be, well, they're not all bad people, but there are some who are bad people. And it's something that we should bring up and we shouldn't necessarily like stop reading their works or anything, but we definitely should know that before we like start talking about them. Yes. And so that's why we're bringing it up today. Another little tidbit 
in discussing her illness, her mental illness, she attributed her creativity to mental illness, which is something some people have brought up before that you have to be like depressed to be creative. I don't think you have to. I just think maybe it's another outlet for them to express their mental illness. And she also said being a woman was being a victim of male medicine. So I think that's where you get her feminism and then also in her works as well. Yeah, that's definitely like fighting against the patriarchy right there. 100%. But And I would say that for your previous uh, statement, there is a certain amount of overlap between people who have faced a lot of tragedy in their lives and are very creative. And I think it is just a good outlet for these people or just that, that like the number of people that, that portray both of these like things. No, it is a good thing to point out. I just think... If you're going to be creative, you do not have to be mentally ill. No, of course not. Of course not. But I think there's a certain amount of overlap there. 100%. Like a lot. Like, like the Venn diagram's almost a circle. Not quite, but almost. And like with the painters and everything else, Van Gogh was horribly depressed. Exactly. Like it just, it really is interesting to think about. Like why do more creative people tend to be the most depressed? I don't have an answer to that rhetorical question. A question I'm hoping is rhetorical. It was rhetorical, obviously. But okay. I just think it's interesting to think about. It definitely is. So now we're going to move on into the story, as we talked a lot about Virginia Woolf's history. So like I said before, she kind of based these characters off of her own life. And there's definitely a lot of overlap there. And I think it's kind of interesting how she talks about the characters in the story. Mabel kind of like just mentions them like we should already know them. So she's just like, oh, that's Rose. And she's just like, Rose. Like, Rose said this. And it's just like, who's Rose? Like, do we not get to know who Rose is? It just kind of happens kind of suddenly, and I think that's the stream of consciousness in the story. It just, like, goes through, the, like, what Mabel's thoughts are in this story. So it's kind of, like, disjointed and a little jarring in places when I was reading. Because we're just talking about all these people, and then we go back into Mabel's head, and then we're back to the people, and then we're back inside of her head. And you do see a lot of Mabel jumping into her thoughts of Miss Milan and originally getting the dress, and then her thoughts of why she wanted the dress the way she did. And then you just see her thinking of the flies and the saucer, which is a really interesting symbol in and of itself. But you just see a lot of random kind of thoughts that you might have while you are at a party. Yeah, it's very off-topic little digresses that happen all the time in the story. It happens a lot in our podcast, too. Well, yes, but I was... <laughs> As I say one. <laughs> You're correct. It does. And I think that's fine. And that's kind of like, we just have more of a stream of consciousness podcast. You know? <laughs> Are we modernist <laughs> podcasters? Oh, I hate us. I also hate us. <laughs> so kind of segueing with that, she kind of hates herself, too. Mabel or Virginia Woolf? Mabel. <laughs> So Mabel is very mean towards herself, and she actually even voices these very mean thoughts to people, and they don't know how to respond to her. You're absolutely right. She does do this throughout the story, and the one that sticks out to me the most is Charlie. It's Charles, sorry. I mean, he might go by Charlie. We don't know his life. I guess you're right. I don't know Charles good enough. Charles Burt, she makes one of these comments to Charles Burt. She says, it's so old-fashioned. And she wasn't actually talking about her dress here. She was talking about the picture and not her dress. She says, it's so oh, it's so old-fashioned talking about the picture. And Charles just kind of thinks she's talking about... Or I think Mabel is assuming that Charles thinks she's talking about herself. Because she goes on to say that if Charles had just reassured her, she'd be okay. But I don't think she would. Because she does the same thing with Miss Milan and the other, um, and Rose. She makes one of these comments, and they do say something reassuring to her. And she doesn't help her. So, and then in this instance, Charles doesn't say anything reassuring, and it doesn't help her. So I think that nothing would have helped her. I think this kind of story is showing, in a, like, a sense, Virginia Woolf's own thoughts on, like, her hopelessness and what she was experiencing in this time. I agree. I do think that Mabel 
is just kind of down on herself and just down about everyone else. And she even says she tries to imagine everyone else as flies, but she only sees herself as a fly and everyone else is dragonflies, butterflies, like beautiful, but she just can't see herself in that same light. She just refuses to see any good about herself and she only wants to see the bad. I think it definitely could be something said about people who are kind of just negative and always negative. Even whenever people are trying to help them, they're like, oh, they're just pitying me. Not to say that anyone should be blamed for their mental illness. It's just there are some people who don't want to be helped. They just always think the world is against them. And I'm definitely not blaming Mabel in this instance. I don't know if it was, I don't, I don't mean to make it sound like that. I'm just saying that she was doing herself no favors and it definitely shows. No, I agree. I think that's a good thing to point out. And just sometimes just being easy on yourself is good. We are humans. We all make mistakes. We all are inherently flawed. And I think it's important to know that. No, that's a good one. I think it also brings up a little bit of the class differences. Mabel does point out that she is a little bit more poor than everyone else. And that's why she went with an older style dress that she thought was nice. But then she sees everyone else's and she's comparing herself to them. And this just brings up a feeling of inferiority in her that they might not even be feeling. Mrs. Dalloway obviously invited her to the party. So they must like her in some instance. It's not just a feeling of obligation. You're absolutely right. And when she goes to leave, she's like, oh, but it's so early. You can't leave yet. And she's like, no, I had a great time. I just have to leave. She wants her there. The host is the host is a lovely lady who wants her there. She wants Mabel there. As this is part of Mrs. Dalloway, the novel, we might get some more viewpoints from that if we were to read that novel as well. And maybe Mrs. Dalloway does have some more cynical thoughts that we know. But from our point of view in this short story... We can see that it seems like Mrs. Dalloway wants her there. Well, and this isn't actually part of the novel, but it was originally intended to be part of the novel. This story can be considered one of several other outtakes of, like, what happened in the story. So I haven't read Mrs. Dalloway. Like I said, I haven't read any Virginia Woolf before, so this is kind of new to me. So I don't know if I can really say anything about more about that, but I think that it's important to say that, like, this is the one Virginia Woolf didn't go with. She didn't think this was the right choice for that story. So I think it's fair for us to say that we don't need to read the rest of the story in order to take what we want from the story. It was published as, as its own separate short story, so we can read it as a separate piece and interpret what we can out of it. It can be seen as a larger part of the work as well, you know, like a little one-shot outside of it, but we can also read it for what it is. Yep. And another interesting thing is that these stories that was included with the rest of these, they were like several other outtakes, kind of, in a way, were published after her death in 1973. It was originally published in 1973 after her death. When I saw The New Dress was actually published in 1927. It might have been published with another works, but the short story itself was published in 1927. Okay, maybe the rest of these outtakes were published in 1973, and this was published along with those as well. And it's possible it's been published many times. Many of these short stories have been. I'm sure this one has as well. Um, but whenever I first looked it up, it was written in 1924 and then published in 1927. I bet then the rest of the outtakes were published altogether in 1973. And that's when they kind of like put two together. and like, oh, this is supposed to be part of Miss Dalloway. So yeah, it might have been originally published just as its own short yep. story. And then later on, historians kind of piece together. How they wanted to piece it together, correct, too. Correct, correct. They, no, they have no input from the author. Obviously, she's dead. We don't know if this is what she originally intended or not. And I think that's fine. I think we're allowed to take what we want from that author. She put her work out there, so we're allowed to take what we want from it. That's a fair point. I like that a lot. I think sometimes people get wrapped up in the author owns the work, and it's always the author's point of view. But I feel as readers, we also have a point of view that we can take and 
experience the literature how we do. Well, and that's the beauty of like life and humans in general is that we all have different experiences. So when you all put those together and we all like read different things and we get different things out of the same writing, like that's kind of the beauty of life, guys. I like that. So to go back a little bit to the class differences, it is said that Virginia Woolf was of higher class with her family being wealthy and that she kind of saw herself as a snob in society. So I think that she is not Mabel in this instance, but she is one of the other women. And so maybe she was imagining how she thought maybe some of the lower class women would have felt if they had her same depression. I'm kind of putting together that she felt bad for all the things that she was given in life, for all the allowances she was given in life. It kind of sounds to me like she resented, or not resented so much, but she definitely had some guilt about this underlying, perhaps. But this story just kind of shows me a little bit of guilt. Because like you said, her father encouraged the writing to happen. Like, her father wanted her to be a writer. And I think that's just kind of like something that poor people would not have been allowed to do at any times. And a lot of other rich people as well, sure. But I think she kind of felt guilty for that. And that's kind of what... I don't have anything to base it off of other than this writing. I think I can kind of see a lot of guilt through what you're saying and then this writing happening. That's an interesting point of view. I don't think I've ever heard that said before. I know she did go to colleges and talk a lot about feminism and about women writing and about women being in literature. She actually has an essay called Women in Literature, and she definitely tried to get more women to write. And she did obviously address the fact that she came from a wealthy family and that she had privileges over that. Yeah. It just sounds to me like she, maybe not so much guilt, I, should, I shouldn't say guilt, but she kind of felt a little bad for these other women that couldn't write like she could. She wanted more women to write, like like you're saying, with the essay and things, and I think like just Virginia Woolf's a feminist. Even I know this, I haven't heard anything about her except that maybe. But I just think that she was trying to use like the allowances she was given in life to help more women, and it didn't really work. Like Her writing is great and instrumental, but there wasn't a lot, a huge change until later. Yeah, I can agree with that. I don't think she was the most influential but she definitely was more of the most prolific. So I think we're going to take a deeper look into some of the symbols in the text. We like symbols in the show. Well, that's like half a writing, Hannah. Symbols. <laughs> so they talk a lot about her new dress and specifically the color of the dress with the yellow. And then they talk a lot about blue things as well, like yellow dots and the black dots and then the blue of the couch. I think it's very important to notice color in literature. I was looking today and I cannot believe we have not read the yellow wallpaper because I thought we had. I like had sworn in my head we had, but I think I've just read it so many times for other things. The Yellow Wallpaper is another short story that focuses on women's mental health and it can be conceived, no, can be perceived as a work of feminist literature. And so yellow in literature can mean joy and, you know, a new day and a dawning, but also it can mean unstable and it can symbolize mental illness. And I think it's really interesting that she chose yellow for the woman's dress. Yeah, yellow isn't really a sad color. I don't think of yellow as sad at all. I think of it kind of as like a little more bright. Yellow is bright to me. It's the sun. That is what I think of when I think yellow. And that's a fair thought to have. But whenever you look up like yellow in literature, it just usually symbolizes joy or happiness, intellect, energy. But it also can represent jealousy, betrayal, cowardice, deceit, illness, and a hazard. So it's just really interesting that it can have such a duality. It really is. Yeah, it feels like the most dual of the colors, maybe. Maybe, because I think also the blue can be another symbol, Well, blue, blue, I think, is another one of those dual colors. I, maybe all the colors are dual. Maybe it <laughs> depends on your mood, I guess. That's a fair point. But I think, and it's also with her sitting on a blue couch, it also can symbolize sadness and her kind of getting, like, washed away a little bit in, like, the ocean of her sadness. Ooh, that was a beautiful <laughs> sentence. You should write, Hannah. <laughs> 
And then also her contrasting with the black dot. Black usually just kind of means darkness and like a pit of despair. I no, think no happiness there. No, not usually. I think the green of someone else can also be seen as like a symbol of like, oh, she's growing, she's blossoming, while I'm over here just suffering. Yeah, there is kind of a whole rainbow of colors throughout the story. Wolf, I think, really smartly used the colors in the story. Well, I think that also kind of comes from the stream of consciousness because, like, she's just writing whatever colors are, like, happening. In the foreknote of my short story collection, it says that Wolf popularized the stream of consciousness narration because she wanted to avoid what she considered the false objectivity of conventional third-person narrators. They think that she was trying to, like, be more truthful by only doing stream of consciousness. Which is interesting because whenever you have stream of consciousness, you inherently have a biases of the narrator. Exactly. So I think that our worldview was a little different than Wolf. So Wolf kind of thought that, and she kind of says this, that there's no objective truth. Interesting. I feel like most people, whenever they're looking at literature, they're like a third person narrator, especially like an omnipresent one, is the best way to write. That's the most truthful way to write. And it's interesting that she kind of was like, no, I think the person's own thoughts are the most truest way to write. Well, she kind of said that she pr had a different perspective. To, well, she didn't say that she had a different one, but they kind of say she had a different perspective of, of reality to where she thought that reality can never be described objectively. There's always something affecting it. So reality is always experienced subjectively and therefore can only be truthfully represented using the subjective. I see what she's saying. I don't necessarily think it's right. I mean, it's very interesting and I definitely can agree with it to a point because anyone reading a piece of literature is never going to have the same experience as someone else. Like if I read this whenever I was, you know, not in a great place, I might be even more sad. But reading it today, I'm kind of like, I feel sorry for Mabel instead of relating to Mabel, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that what that means for Mabel is that she's experiencing this as a sad moment when in reality it's not. So like all the other party goers are having a good time at this party and they're thinking she is too because she even at the end says it was a great party, had a great time, I just have to leave. There was no negative connotation for this party for anyone else there except Mabel. So while the party was a drag for Mabel and she experienced it as such, no one else did. So was the party a drag? For Mabel, the answer is yes. For the other party goers, the answer is no. That's really an interesting point of view, too. I did see some things whenever they talk about Mabel's character that she was very, like, shy, almost to the point of, like, social anxiety, which I think you can also see a lot here. I don't think it would have ever been labeled before, especially whenever, like, these gatherings were commonplace, which, huh, pre-COVID times, man. <laughs> but I think we do see a lot of her, like, anxiety coming through and with her punching cushions, it says. Instead of fluffing cushions, it says punching them to look distracted like she's doing something. And I think that's a definite intentional use of the word. I agree with you 100% on that one. Well, I think that we have talked for a long time about this story. I mean, this is might be one of our longest episodes. And even whenever I was researching for it, I said, this is going to be a long episode. There's just a lot here to unpack. It's a very emotionally full story. It definitely is. And then whenever we want to bring in Virginia Woolf's life, which I think is important to do with this work since it seems so based off her life, it just adds a whole nother layer to it as well. Well, I think it's important for a lot of works. We just haven't had the chance or maybe the want so much to do it for all the other works because it wasn't as important. We hope you'll reach out and let us know your thoughts on the story. And you can catch us next time as we celebrate Black History Month by reading Langston Hughes's One Friday Morning. Analytical is created, hosted, and produced by Hannah and John Newland. It is edited by John Newland. The artwork was created by Hannah Newland using Logo Maker and is owned by Hannah and John Newland. The theme music you're jamming to now is created by John Bartman, and you can check out more of his work at his website, johnbartman.com. 
Web design is by Hannah Newland, and you can find us at analyticalpod.wixsite.com slash analytical. And you can find that link in the description. All our social pages are at analyticalpod, and you can email us at analyticalpod at gmail.com to reach out and discuss your thoughts on this episode, to chat about literature, or life. Please rate and review us and subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends. It will help other people find and enjoy as well. 